Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. We've looked at many different ways that we can be proactive and be healthy. We involves many lifestyle choices, good diet, exercise, sleep. We've had many people talk about this. Many people have referred to the mitochondria, the powerhouse that make ATP, which is the energy that our body thrives on. And they have a lot to do with our health, our longevity, and the advent of chronic diseases, even mental health disorders. So we're going to learn from an expert about mitochondria and how we can get these mitochondria going to our optimal advantage. With us, we have Dr. Lee No, who's just written a book, Mitochondria and the Future of Medicine. He is a naturopath, licensed and based in Canada, and a recipient of several awards. He is known by his peers to be a strategic and forward-thinking entrepreneur and physician. He's held positions as medical advisor, scientific evaluator, and the director of research and development for major organizations. Besides managing scientific affairs for his own company, he also serves as a consultant to the natural health products and dietary supplement industries and serves on the editorial advisory board for Alive, that's A-L-I-V-E, magazine. That's Canada's most read natural health magazine. He calls the greater Toronto area home where he lives with his common law partner, their two sons, and has a particular interest in promoting natural health and environmental stewardship. So that's why he's on the line and welcome. Thank you, Dr. Downs. So, okay. So uh, tell us about your background. What got you motivated to write Mitochondria and the Future of Medicine? Yeah, so this is, uh, as you just introduced me, uh, I'm, a, I'm a naturopathic doctor by education. And uh, for the last decade or so, I've been consulting in the, uh, in the natural health industry. And when, uh, and I, I mean, every, we all will learn about the mitochondria in cell biology in high school and in university um, and, and in med school. But um, the, the importance of it was never really conveyed to us outside of, you know, this is an organelle that produces the bulk of the energy in our cells. And it really never went beyond that. Um, So when I was working for this one particular uh, company that had a a coenzyme Q10 product that was particularly well absorbed and and used by hospitals, um, what ended up happening just around that that time, there was a a lot of work being done uh, in animal models uh, for female infertility. And one of the things that uh, came about from these animal studies, uh, it was shown that at least a subset of infertile females, they they, they're infertile essentially because they have an energetic uh, deficit in their oocytes or their uh, their unfertilized eggs. And what these rat studies were showing was that when we added CoQ10 to their diet, they started to regain their fertility. And based on this, a lot of fertility clinics across Canada started to uh, recommend CoQ10 to their uh, a subset of their female infertile female patients. And 
this one particular clinic asked me to come in and do a presentation to them, uh, to their doctors and nurses to help them understand why they should be recommending CoQ10 to their, to their patients. And as I started to do the research to put this presentation together, that's when I was blown away at the importance of mitochondria, uh, mitochondria health and function, not only to infertility and, and fertility, but it was linked to so many other degenerative diseases. And uh, the, the, the more I researched, the deeper I got, the more fascinating it, it became. And the motivation to eventually think about writing a book was that as my, develop, uh, my interest developed in this area, what I noticed was missing was a single resource that kind of give me the, the, the overall picture from both the evolutionary uh, perspective of how mitochondria came to be and why it's so important to our health, through the different uh, health conditions that are affected by dysfunctional mitochondria. And then, of course, on the other side of the, of the coin, what we can do to, to nurture the health of our mitochondria. So what I wanted to do was kind of uh, develop this resource and have it as at least a starting point where people can kind of enter the, uh, the maze of mitochondrial health and, and then go from there. It certainly is a very thorough book. I mean, uh, my type notes are about 27 pages on it. It's very thorough. seems <laughs> to address just about every chronic disease imaginable as well as the science behind it. So it seems to be a very good research source. Yeah. And you know what? I, I will say that uh, as much as I like to believe I included at least the more important or the common degenerative diseases, in my research, when I was doing the, the research for this book, it was linked to so many more, but it just got to a point where I had to draw the line in the sand and, and said to myself, you know what, enough of this research, I'm going to actually have to sit down and start writing. Uh, so what ended up making uh, it into the book is really just a snapshot or a small selection of what's actually out there in the, in the scope of what mitochondrial uh, dysfunction, sorry, what diseases are related to mitochondrial dysfunction. So there, there are a lot more, and that's why, why I like to say that this is a starting point. It's, it's what will bring people into the field of mitochondrial health, um, and then they can go deeper from, the, from there. You know, so you didn't want to write a thousand-page treatise uh, that would be an encyclopedic <laughs> uh, knowledge base. If I had time. <laughs> Well, I think yeah. you hit the main points, and that's what's important for the most the average people. The scholars can look at other things. Right. But it sounds like mitochondria, you know, is involved in every disease. It's not that you left any out. It's just that you didn't have time to discuss all the diseases. Right. That's exactly it. Okay. So we're going to get into that. But first, uh, let's, uh, for the listener, tell us what are mitochondria. How many mitochondria do cells have? How do they create energy? Sure. Yeah. So um, if you remember from bi uh, high school biology, um, we learned about the mitochondria as the energy generators in our cells. So we have many different types of organelles in a cell, uh, just like we have many different types of organs in our body. And the uh, organs to the body are very similar to organelles, uh, to what organelles are to the cell. They're distinct structures that carry out specialized function. And for the mitochondria, it is tasked with the, uh, the energy making process. And it's responsible for producing over 90% of the energy that our cells need. And this is critical to understand because everything that ha happens in the cell requires energy. And so if you don't have enough mitochondria, they're not working properly, you're gonna have an energy 
deficiency in the cells and the cells are not going to be able to function properly. And that is essentially the start of a degenerative disease. Now, in terms of the number of mitochondria per cell, it's really dictated uh, by the energetic demands of that particular cell. So when we look at highly intense uh, organs like uh, the brain and the heart, uh, these are organs that require a tremendous amount of energy. And as such, each individual cell, whether you're talking a neuron in the brain or a, a, a cardiac cell in the heart, we would see, typically see a couple thousand mitochondria per cell. Um, but then on the, other, on the other end of the spectrum, if you look at uh, tissues or cells that don't have a huge metabolic demand, such as red blood cells, you might see uh, just a few, uh, just a handful, if, if any at all. So um, you get the full range. And again, it all depends on the energetic demands of the cell. Uh, what happens if we don't have this energy that the mitochondria make? Well, it's so at, if, if the mitochondria start to dysfunction, it really depends on that cell and where that threshold uh, lies between health and disease. So we actually have a bit of a cushion where a number of uh, mitochondria can start to dysfunction and we're still okay. The other mitochondria in the cell, remember there, you know, a couple hundred to a couple thousand, uh, the other mitochondria might be healthy and functioning and able to kind of pull, uh, make up for that slack. Uh, however, if enough mitochondria in, in a particular cell starts to dysfunction and are not able to produce that energy, then that, that threshold has been breached and that cell goes into an energetic deficit. And at that point, what ends up happening is that the cell needs to make a determination whether this, this is a cell that is viable and can continue to thrive and survive or if the body needs to get rid of it through a process called uh, apoptosis or apoptosis, which is cellular suicides or programmed cell death. And what's really interesting is that the mitochondria um, is actually the orchestrator of cellular, su uh, cellular suicide. So if that cell, um, it's, it's determined that that cell is no longer viable and the signal to commit suicide is given, it's actually the mitochondria that can jump in again to initiate that cell suicide program. So uh, what happens is as cells um, have a deficiency in energy, they're eliminated and, uh, and um, they're eliminated from the, the tissue in the body. And what we end up happening over time as we age, we have less density of cells in a particular organ. And this is one of the, this is one of the things I, I mentioned in my book and one of the reasons why when we look at aged tissue, we don't necessarily see a lot of, you know, genetic uh, uh, defects and things like that because those cells that have the genetic defects that have built up they're quietly and invisibly removed from the body so when we look at organs uh, aged organs we don't necessarily see a huge amount of genetic defects but what we do see is reduced density of cells and that's what essentially aging looks like at the cellular level so if we have a reduced number of cells, that organ doesn't work efficiently. And if they're reduced to, to lower level, the organ can stop functioning? Exactly, exactly. Now, you mentioned apoptosis, um, you know, cell suicide. Um, what happens if this suicide uh, path does not take place properly? You get all this gunk in the system, and doesn't that cause a lot of inflammation, oxidative stress, and problems? Absolutely, yeah. So that's that's on the 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 better end of the spectrum. As as bad as that sounds, uh, the other side of the uh, spectrum 
um, are things like cancer. So when uh, when cells are given that that inst the instruction to commit suicide, and for one reason or another they don't, and that cell is allowed to survive and replicate, that is essentially the start of uh, cancer. Uh, so it's it's one of the reasons why uh, you might start to hear a lot of um, talk about cancer being a metabolic disease and uh, different ways to approach uh, or augment cancer therapy using um, uh, metabolic approaches. Uh, that's where all, all this com comes from. And this, I should also mention when we talk about cancer, uh, the extreme form of you know cells not dying when they're supposed to, this is something that's been identified way back in the 1920s. So cancer as a metabolic disease is not something that's new. It's just that at some point we thought that cancer is a genetic disorder and, and the entire medical profession started to focus more on genetics. Um, but now with newer research showing that it is a metabolic disor disorder, or at least the vast majority of cancers are met, uh, are, have its roots in metabolic dysfunction, uh, we're starting to see a, almost a renaissance of that whole cancer as a metabolic uh, disorder um, perspective come, come back into conventional medicine. Yeah, wasn't that a gentleman named Warburg that came up with that theory? And we've had many speakers talking about this. And some of their main points is uh, cancer really likes sugar. So if we cut off the sugar supply, uh, they run into trouble and have trouble thriving. And they apparently have a lot of their own mitochondria and glutathione so that the cancer cells can thrive. But if we deprive them of the sugar, which hence we call it a metabolic issue, that they have trouble. Exactly. Yes. Carl Warburg is the one that uh, that uh, discovered this phenomenon, and uh, and I think it's more relevant now than you know than nearly a hundred years ago. Well, we have several speakers that spoke on that. Amy Amy Berger and uh, Dominic D'Agostino is scheduled as well, so you'll hear a lot more about that. So, but I think uh, cutting down sugar. Uh, is very important for any chronic condition you're worried about. So I think that's a general health adage that we might keep in mind. Absolutely. Okay. So you say that, so are the mitochondria heavily involved in this apoptosis, uh, sending the defect cells to their grave site? Sorry? Uh, are the mitochondria involved in this process of apoptosis where you help cells go on to their yes, yeah, that's right. So as, as I mentioned, that they are responsible for orchestrating or initiating that cellular suicide program. So the signal for apoptosis can come from many different angles or places in the cell for all sorts of different reasons. Um, but all those signals make their way to the level of the mitochondria. It's the mitochondria that determines whether that threshold has been breached or not. And then it starts the, uh, the, the process. The other thing to keep in mind is that many, many times the, uh, many of the steps involved in apoptosis uh, require an input of energy. So that's also uh, something uh, to keep in mind is that if we actually have a deficiency in cellular energy, and even if the mitochondria are functioning properly enough to give that signal for cellular suicide, but is not able to deliver the energy that's needed to initiate different steps in that program, um, you know, you're, you're going to end up in the same place where those cells are, are allowed to survive and replicate and, and lead to, to cancer. So mitochondria do have a critical um, uh, part to play in different areas of, of keeping our, our bodies healthy and keeping us free from cancer. 
So uh, poorly functioning mitochondria could be a double whammy. They're not making the energy that your body needs to, uh, to thrive, and they don't have the energy to get rid of the defected cells, which are just going to hang around, cause inflammation, oxidative stress, all sorts of problems leading to accelerating the path to chronic diseases. So mitochondria are extremely important. Absolutely. And uh, as we were saying, the more and more research has done in, in, into this area, we're starting to realize that um, we have a lot of uh, potential areas to target within the mitochondria uh, in, in future cancer therapy. And then, in fact, many, many different pharmaceutical companies are looking at ways to target a defective mitochondria in cancer therapy. We can also look at using mitochondria as a, a marker for cancer to see how how uh, how it's progressing or how it might be regressing. Uh, so there's a lot of exciting um, research being done with respect to mitochondria. So does the body kind of triage the energy? So if you're low on energy, will it divert it from uh, the less important systems like the blood cells to the heart and the brain that are heavily dependent on energy? Will the body triage it and send the energy where it needs it the most? It will, uh, but this is more at the cellular level where within a cell there are, you know, hundreds or thousands of different processes that are going on that require an input of energy. But if there's not enough energy to meet the demand of the full cell, the, the cell will start to determine, you know, where does the cell need it most and or what processes need that, that uh, limited energy the most. And this is where the cell will go from, you know, its regular day-to-day functioning uh, state to kind of... Um, uh, more of an emergency cell survival state where just the basic processes, the most essential for survival are, are the ones that get the, the energy first or the, the limited supplies of energy first. Now you said the mitochondria create 90% of the energy. Where does the other 10% come from? So that comes from outside of the mitochondria. So when we look at energy production, it essentially happens in three main phases. And uh, the majority of that 10% really comes from a process called glycolysis, which happens in the cytosol of the cell, the fluid compartment of the cell. And this is where we start to break down things like sugar, glucose, um, into other into smaller components that then enter the mitochondria and participate in the next cycle of energy production called the Krebs cycle or the tricarboxylic acid cycle. Um, and that produces a tiny bit of energy, but then those end products of the, the Krebs cycle then go into the electron transport chain where the uh, where most of that energy is, is produced. But, but like I said, the, the majority of that 10%, give or take a few percent, um, really happens outside of the mitochondria in a process that essentially uses uh, glucose to, to produce that energy. So how do the mitochondria create energy? Okay, so it, um, like I said, the, the vast bulk of that energy is produced in a process called the electron transport chain. And this, um, this is a really interesting way to create energy because what we're essentially doing, um, and if I can kind of use an analogy to, to make this uh, a little easier to talk about, you can think of it as a hydroelectric dam where, where essentially the... Uh, we're pumping water into a reservoir and allowing that water to flow back through specialized channels that turn turbines to create hydroelectricity. In a very similar fashion, the electron transport chain, as those electrons are passed down from one complex to the next, that energy that's released from these electrons are used to pump protons or hydrogen ions uh, into a reservoir 
which builds up pressure and then eventually has to flow back through a specialized channel called ATP synthase or ADPase. And in that process, takes the building blocks of ADP or adenosine diphosphate, takes another phosphate ion to and combines them together to create adenosine triphosphate or ATP. Uh, and this happens um, constantly, you know, I think there's about uh, an estimated about 10,000 electron transport chains in each mitochondria, uh, mitochondrion. And uh, again, when we're looking at things like the brain cells or the heart cells, we have a couple of thousand. So we're talking a lot of these, you know, electron transport chains producing all that energy constantly throughout the day in every cell of our body. Wow, this sounds so important. Sounds like a key point in medicine. But yet when I was studying the Krebs cycle, I just didn't connect any of the dots as to its importance. Yeah, likewise. I mean, and, and that's why, oh, why I was so fascinated when I started to, to kind of unravel uh, all this in, in my research. Uh, it, it's just nothing that we were really taught in school. Now, mind you, I, I, I've been out of school for, for um, I guess, over 15 years now. So it I'd like to believe that, you know, medical curriculum is progressive and pushing new ideas forward and new research forward. But uh, I, I, I almost get the feeling that they're still learning the basics of mitochondria and mitochondrial function, unfortunately. Uh, maybe hopefully that, that'll change in the future. Well, I can only speak for medical school in the 80s, and uh, but that was a while ago. Now, one thing I think that's important about this electron transport chain is that it creates a lot of oxidative stress, which is something that many of our previous lecturers have said it, it and inflammation are interconnected, um, you know, going back and forth, generating each other, leading to chronic diseases. So is the uh, oxidative stress uh, created by electron transport chain a problem? It is. And when you look at the, uh, the most critical oxidative stress that happens in our body, it's actually at the level of, of the mitochondria. And what's really interesting to note is that uh, not only is the, the bulk of uh, damaging free radicals generated at the level of the mitochondria, but it's specifically, if we could pinpoint the single point where the vast bulk of those free radicals are, are, are formed, it's actually at complex one. So basically entry to the electron transport chain. That's where uh, most of those electrons are fumbled, so to speak. And when that happens, it... So, so let me let me backtrack just to kind of give you an understanding of how these um, uh, free radicals are generated. So, as the electron transport chain, the name would imply, um, this chain of complexes essentially pass electrons from one to the next, and uh, complex one and complex two, the entry points to the to the electron transport chain. They both pass electrons off to coenzyme Q10, which then goes to complex three over to cytochrome C, and then to complex four. Now, complex four is an interesting part in the interesting place in the cell because this is the only place where we can enzymatically take that electron and react it with oxygen to create water, a harmless substance. The problem is, is that if at some point those electrons fall out of the electron transport chain prior to getting to complex four, it prematurely reacts with oxygen to create a superoxide free radical. So we're, we're, the reason why complex one is often seen as the primary site of free radical generation is that uh, if you look at a, 
a schematic of the electron transport chain. And as I just described, complex, uh, complex one and two both pass electrons off to coenzyme Q10. So if you look at where a bottleneck could potentially lie, it's really at that entry point. Uh, and the reason is that electrons can't, uh, a complex cannot hold more than one electron. It needs to be able to pass off its existing electron to the next complex in the chain before accepting a new one. So if, if we don't have enough um, CoQ10, remember CoQ10 is picking up electrons from two different complexes, and if we don't have enough CoQ10, at some point those electrons that are trying to enter at complex one can't and they spill out, again, prematurely react with oxygen to create damaging free radicals. Wow. So let me summarize some of the points so far. The mitochondria are just essential part of our health and um, longevity. Uh, it's important that they work so we have energy so the body can function without energy things die off. It's important to have the mitochondria functioning well and have enough energy to get rid of the garbage, the cells that are no longer functioning that are just getting in the way, creating more oxidative stress. So it's important to get rid of these. So it's very, the mitochondria are key in our health. And he's saying CoQ10, as it takes some of the excess electrons and it's scurries them around to where they need to go is essential in keeping our health of our mitochondria and our health in general. Correct? That's right. And, and that's, uh, you, you mentioned statins earlier on. And uh, one of the things why I'm so adamantly opposed to statins is that they block our body's production or ability to produce sufficient amounts of CoQ10. So that was um, going to be my next question. Yes. <laughs> I was going. <laughs> yes. So, so yeah, so, so um, coenzyme Q10 is produced in the same biochemical pathway that cholesterol is made. So when, you, when, statins, when, when a person takes statins and blocks that enzyme that produces cholesterol, we're inadvertently also blocking our body's ability to produce CoQ10, which, again, is, is critical for the functioning of the electron transport chain. So in my mind, um, it doesn't make sense why you would you know, prescribe someone these, these types of drugs, and yes, it might lower cholesterol if you believe that uh, cholesterol is even a problem in the first place, but the, the consequence of that is that you're inducing a state of CoQ10 deficiency. You're potentially bringing about cardiovascular disease, the exact thing that you're trying to prevent. Yes, because... Uh, if you deep, that's probably why so many people have muscle complaints if they deplete their CoQ10 and there have been links to diabetes and even cognitive decline, but this seems to be a straight pathway. Also, I understand the statins might be uh, lower adiponectin, which is a, connected with diabetes. So, I mean, this is something if you get a statin prescribed, I mean, my neurologist wanted to give me 40 milligrams of Crestor and I kind of looked at him funny, are you kidding? I just made a movie about this. Oh, by the way, <laughs> by the way, my movie's called The Big Secret. You can get it on Amazon Prime and we talk about statins and various health issues. But, you know, and then a colleague of mine just got uh, on the statin train. I was telling him he needs a CoQ10. I mean, this is essential, folks. So what other things can statins do uh, to your health? Well, when you consider it's linked to decreased uh, CoQ10, and I should also mention that indirectly it's been proven that uh, statins can damage mitochondrial function. And the reason I, I say this is that there are a number of studies now that show that individuals who could not tolerate their statin medications due to side effects, um, when supplemented with coenzyme Q10, 
the severity and frequency of their side effects diminished or those individuals that couldn't even take statins because of their um, the side effects when given uh, statins with CoQ10, they're able to actually tolerate the, uh, the the statin medication. So again, this essentially confirms what we're talking about in terms of an induced deficiency of CoQ10. Um, the other thing I should also mention is that cholesterol is a precursor to vitamin D. And um, there's also been other studies, I think at least two studies now that show that individuals that cannot tolerate their statin medications due to side effects when supplemented with vitamin D uh, can also tolerate their their medications again. So you know when when we look at statins and the fact that it blocks the production of so these you know two well actually three or more uh, because cholesterol is uh, the precursor to sex hormones and all sorts of different other hormones. When you're looking at blocking this particular pathway that statins do, you're really setting yourself up for so many. Uh, unrelated health conditions, all based on the fact that, you know, you're blocking that one enzyme. So it's, it's one of those things where I, I unfortunately, it's, it's the number one prescribed drug in the world, but it's one of those drugs that I find really doesn't need to be prescribed uh, or in rare cases, if at all. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's definitely something I think more people are starting to come around to, to understand. And, and again, this even goes back to the fact that whether or not we even uh, believe that cholesterol is an issue in, in the first place. Uh, so if you believe that and you want to do something about your cholesterol levels, I'd say statins are the last, last resort. You should try everything else possible before resorting to statins. Well, cholesterol also, I think, is part of the cell membrane. So what scares me, if the statins cross the blood-brain barrier, what are they doing to your brain? True. And you mentioned earlier that it's been linked to cognitive decline and uh, a possible increased risk of Alzheimer's. So, um, you know, it's, it's just one of those drugs that if you don't have to take it, I would, I would suggest uh, you look for an alternative solution. Does it help with the LDLs, the small particle LDLs? Does it help with triglycerides? I mean, does it help? Some people say that kind of helps restructure the plaque and can have anti, you know, you know, antioxidant effects. I mean, does it have any benefits? Uh, that is a good question, and I don't know if I can can adequately answer that without doing a little bit more research. I I I remember. Um, I remember looking into the different uh, types of LDL particles, um, but I, what I don't recall, uh, and maybe you know more about this than, than I do, Dr. Downs, but um, if I remember correctly, statins didn't even address the more damaging LDL particles. So um, what, we, what we typically see with LDL is that the, the smaller and more dense the LDL particle, the, the more damage it can be. Um, but statins don't actually address the most damaging LDL particles. Um, again, I could be wrong on this, and I'm going from memory years back, but that's how I seem to remember it. Well, I'm not looking forward to my appointment with my neurologist next month and telling him, I no, I didn't take your Crestor, so we'll see what happens there. <laughs> we'll anyway, uh, to the audience, check out my film, The Big Secret. It's on Amazon Prime. We go into statins, GMO, sugar industry, fluoridating the water, and all sorts of exciting things. Okay, so why do you think the medical communities overlook the importance of mitochondria? Well, I don't think it was something that was intentionally done. Um, what I believe is that, uh, it, first of all, it's incredibly complex. Uh, it, it's a very complex topic to begin with. Um on top of that, when we look at, 
the the amount of research that's been done, um, a lot of that re- a lot of the good research has really been coming out in the last uh, last little while now. So up until uh, more recently, I'd say you know. 10, 20 years ago, um, we just didn't have the understanding or, or the the idea that this was that important. So it's just something that was was done, and we were developing all this research and this evidence. Um, but it, it it had to uh, reach a point where there was enough evidence and enough connections between different uh, seemingly different uh, disease processes for us to start to form this bigger picture um, to see what was actually happening. And that's when we start to see that, oh, you know what, at the root of many of these seemingly disconnected disease processes uh, lies mitochondrial dysfunction. And now that we understand that, we can kind of put together a concerted effort to kind of address um, mitochondrial dysfunction. And the benefit to something like that is that we now have a, have relatively small target, um, as complex as it is, um, that, you know, if we were able to fix this or address it in a suitable way, we can reduce the risk of so many different health conditions. We can improve quality of life into old age, and we can even potentially extend the lifespan uh, for, for humans and, uh, you know, reduce, significantly reduce the risk of cancer. All sorts of different benefits that, that come from, you know, addressing this one particular organelle. What are the most common health conditions that are linked to mitochondrial dysfunction? So, as we discussed, um, you know, cognitive decline in Alzheimer's has been linked to dysfunctional mitochondria, but uh, many different forms of cardiovascular health. The one that's most directly been uh, related to mitochondrial dysfunction is uh, just heart failure. We know that diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes, has been linked to mitochondrial disease. And this is really interesting as well because for a long time we thought that diabetes was an endocrine disorder, but now we're seeing that it's a metabolic disorder. And if we approach treatment from a metabolic perspective, um, there are are at least two, maybe three studies now showing that we can actually cure diabetes. Um, Things like chronic fatigue syndrome, sarcopenia, and cancer, they've all been related back to dysfunctional mitochondria. Uh, when we think of things like even hearing loss, um, ADHD, uh, some forms of depression, you know, the, the, the list really goes on and on and on, all the different things that have been linked back to uh, dysfunctional mitochondria. So, I mean, it sounds like uh, it can be just about any disease. And I assume the mechanism is the one we've discussed that with a, with a low energy, we can't make enough energy and our organs and cells can't really do their job and we can't get rid of the discarded malfunctioning um, cells through apoptosis or cell suicide. Is that the mechanism? That is the mechanism. Now that is, I guess, a a bit of a a simplification, Uh, different, uh, different variables come into play, but essentially what ends up happening is the end result of say different genetic defects or different uh, variables that come into play eventually result in an energetic deficit, and that is the, the start of it. But uh, what initiates that energetic deficit can, can be different from one person to another or, or from uh, one uh, health condition to the next. So it sounds like mitochondria play a key role in aging, and actually um, by measuring the telomeres, some people assess you know, what, what your biological age is. Yes, um, now, the, what's interesting is that, uh, and I know there's been a lot of talk about telomeres, um, 
what's what's interesting with this, and they are absolutely tied into uh, the aging process and longevity. Uh, but when you look at the 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 root, um, you're it really does point to dysfunctional mitochondria. And the mitochondrial theory of aging is considered the the most accurate or evidence based theory of aging. Now, again, that doesn't exclude tel- uh, the importance of telomeres in, in the aging process. It's just that there is, uh, a, if you go one step upstream from the, the telomeres, we're really looking at mitochondrial dysfunction having an influence on, uh, you know, polymerase or other sorts of dis- um, uh, processes that would influence the length of telomeres. So each uh, mitochondria have their D- own DNA. So why is this important? This is really important because, first of all, uh, the reason they, that they have their own DNA, um, we have to go back two billion years ago when everything on Earth was just bacteria. Everything that's a multicellular organism, including all the vegetation on our, on our planet, um, is a result of something that happened two billion years ago when one bacteria engulfed another bacteria. And normally what happens is that engulfed bacteria gets the digested. But in one particular situation, that bacteria uh, didn't get digested, but instead, uh, over time, formed a symbiotic relationship with with its host and eventually evolved to become the mitochondria where its role in this symbiotic relationship was to uh, supply energy so that the, the host could no longer, was no longer required to produce its own energy and could do other things. And so, the importance of this is that um, as as we've kind of progressed through the last two billion years, uh, the, the mitochondria, which um, originated from bacteria, uh, maintains a small set of its own DNA, and it's it's very small um, but critically important to the function of the mitochondria. And this is because it really it uh, it codes for thirteen. Um, proteins that are critical components of the electron transport chain. So when you have uh, damage to the mitochondrial DNA, uh, some uh, complexes or components of the the complexes cannot be produced, and then it impacts energetic, um, it it impacts the energy-making process right across the board. Um, I, I should also mention the importance of this is that it also means that mitochondria are particularly susceptible to certain classes of antibiotics. And so newer research, again, is showing that, um, you know, if you don't have to take antibiotics, it's best not to do. And it is something that we've known about for a long time, especially with antibiotic resistance on the rise. But we now have a different reason or a, a new reason to also try to avoid antibiotics and use them really as a last case scenario only. And that is because of its uh, potential damage to the mitochondria. Well, it also damages the microbiome, which is another key player in our health. Of, of course, yes. Yeah. So how do mitochondria get damaged? So you mentioned antibiotics, and I imagine there's toxins, and you know, even exercising too much can cause ex- uh, oxidative stress. So what are the different things that can damage our mitochondria? Yeah, so, uh, so we talked about... A, a couple of different drugs, but I should also mention that there are many other drugs, pharmaceuticals that can damage mitochondria in different as, uh, in, in different ways. Um, different uh, environmental uh, pollutants, uh, whether uh, 
compounds that we find in our air or water or in our food. As an example, pesticides, uh, a number of different pesticides have, have been shown to be particularly toxic to mitochondria. So um, if, if possible, eating organic uh, would be the, uh, the ideal when it comes to food and drinking purified filtered water. And, and, and um, another benefit to when, when we're looking at drinking fresh, clean water, um, uh, there EMFs um, can also cause uh, mitochondria damage. Uh, different food additives, like certain artificial food colors, have been shown to damage mitochondria. But one of the things that is probably most uh, relevant to the vast majority of listeners is an imbalance between supply and demand. So when we have uh, either too much supply or not enough uh, demand um, for that energy, uh, that's when problems can start. And this is one of the reasons why overeating or, or excessive calorie consumption has been linked to so many different degenerative diseases. Again, when we consume calories, we're essentially at the cellular level talking about electrons. And if we just have too many electrons entering the electron transport, we're going to have an, in, an increased amount of those spill out uh, to create those damaging free radicals. On the other side of the... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, how fascinating this is. Every speaker, no matter what is their expertise, all of them recommended an organic diet. And through the period of February 23rd through about March 23rd on this show, we had uh, it's all talking about toxins, including electromagnetic fields and different experts, and that these toxins really play havoc on our health for many different reasons. But now they're attacking our mitochondria, our basic energy source. This is even more important, but it's very interesting how all of our speakers tie all this back together about the importance of toxins and the importance of healthy lifestyle, including eating organic foods. Right. And what's really interesting is I'm, I'm sure that every every speaker or every guest you've had is saying the same message, but for different reasons. And that kind of illustrates to you how damaging to so many different aspects of our health these these toxins are you know we're not just talking about damage to the mitochondria we're talking about damage to many other things in our body as well so so yeah definitely avoiding pesticides and and eating organic would be the ideal for everyone for any any particular reason um how fascinating this is what toxins should we avoid electromagnetic fields you've mentioned pesticides i imagine glyphosate is doing a lot of damage um and then all these compounds probably the plastics anything we find in uh processed foods etc so what should we what toxins should we avoid well, um, as an example, I've, uh, and this didn't make it into my book, but one of the things that I came across was uh, the Gulf War Syndrome, uh, where uh, soldiers uh, that were in the Gulf War um, experience, started experiencing all these different uh, symptoms. And one of the things that they uh, identified was that the chemical exposure that these uh, these uh, military personnel were exposed to while serving uh, uh, in the Gulf War uh, led to dysfunctional mitochondria. So, uh, you know, and there's an entire toxic soup of chemicals that they were exposed to. Who knows if we even know all of them? Um, but as I mentioned, uh, even even artificial food colors have been linked to uh, dysfunctional mitochondria. I, I came across one study that showed uh, this, uh, this one particular artificial blue color that's often used in candies and things like that uh, and shave gels. Uh, for, I have no idea why, wow. but shaved gels are often colored blue for some particular reason. But, you know, and these are things that stay on the skin, get absorbed into our bodies, or, you know, when we're 
um, eating a sucker or something. Uh, never mind that the, the sugar, on, 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 which is a toxic on its own, but the, the artificial blue color again gets absorbed sublingually and go on to damage our, our mitochondria. There is different types of air pollution. Uh, there's a study that showed uh, a PM10 or particulate matter that's uh, smaller than 10 nanograms, uh, 10 nanometers. Um, uh, can get absorbed through the lungs and go on to to cause um, damage to the mitochondria. So, you know, without, you know, trying to scare people, um, it really does seem like, you know, you can't get away from these toxins that will uh, damage mitochondria. But what we can do is minimize our exposure as much as possible and then do other things that can help nurture the, the, the function of mitochondria. And what I don't understand, I see all these women and some men putting all this stuff on their face and their bodies and these fragrances and all these, I, I just don't understand it. I guess they want to have lousy mitochondria function. <laughs> yeah, or, or maybe they just don't know. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, that it's, I would say it's the bulk of, of the population that just, you know, are completely clueless when it comes to their health and what they need to do to preserve their health. But what I'm really happy to see is at least in the last, say, 10 years or so, it's really become trendy to look after your health. Um, you know, it seems like I have a, 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 my, my older son, he's in grade eight, ready to go into high school. And it, it, I even see it in, in his age group where, you know, they're, they're drinking these juices now, um, oh. you know, fresh, fresh pressed juices at, at a local shop. Um, it just seems like health is on everyone's minds a, a lot more. And like I said, it's trendy to be healthy. It's trendy to actually care about your health. Whereas in the past, you know, it might've been cool to smoke cigarettes. Um, well, I don't think it was ever cool, but you know, the perception for, for some people might've been that, but um, it's, it's now kind of shifting more to health. And as that trend continues, I'm hoping that the importance of avoiding toxins whether it's stuff that we ingest or put it on our skin, I think that will become uh, a lot more uh, of common knowledge to the general public and hopefully result in a, in a society and a population that's, uh, that's a lot more fit and healthy and happy than, um, than we used to be. Well, that's why we have the show and that's why you're writing your book and that's why we do what we do. So it sounds like the first step in reclaiming our mitochondrial health is healthy lifestyles, uh, organic diet, avoid processed foods, avoid toxins, including electromagnetic fields, get a little bit of exercise, but not too much, because I think too much exercise gives excess oxidative stress. And some of these people have the prognosis of people who hadn't exercised at all. And just be healthy and, you know, take care of ourselves. Absolutely, yeah. Any other steps in reclaiming mitochondrial health? You mentioned that when we have a carbohydrate or food bombarding our mitochondria, it's too much for them. So it sounds like caloric restriction or perhaps intermittent caloric restriction might also be a way to help our mitochondria. That is true. And, and I make mention of this in my book. Um, caloric restriction has uh, is re essentially the only proven method across every species that we've looked at to extend lifespan. So, um, you know, different things have been shown to extend lifespan in different species, but it's not true when tested in other species. Caloric restriction, uh, which is reducing calories by 30 to 40% of what we would normally eat if we had no limits. Um, that, that reduction in calories, uh, like I said, is the, the, the single uh, 
on, and the, the only proven way to extend lifespan. What's really cool, though, is that not only are we extending lifespan, but we're really delaying the onset of degenerative disease, diseases. So we even seen this in our closest relative um, primates. Uh, I remember there was uh, more recently, uh, maybe about five years ago, there was a study that was a 25-year longitudinal study that on rhesus monkeys where they found that uh, the group of monkeys that were calorie restricted not only lived longer, they just weren't getting um, uh, uh, things like diabetes, uh, obesity, cardiovascular disease until way later in their life. And the, the severity of those diseases were also a lot less. So it's uh, it's one of those things that I think we can look to as, as yeah. one of the tools. But that um, doesn't sound like any fun without <laughs> a ketogenic diet to some of Dr. Longo's work of, you know, having ketogenesis a little bit. I mean, who wants to restrict calories? Well, not me, <laughs> but, uh, but you're right. Uh, the, the other thing, and, and that's what, one of the things that I think is picking up in popularity is things like intermittent fasting, which is a lot easier to, to do. Yes. Um, but absolutely, ketogenic diets, um, is, and I also mentioned that in my book, um, and when you look at the mechanism of how it works, it really ties back to the mitochondria and allowing our mitochondria to have an alternative source of fuel outside of, uh, other than uh, glucose and carbohydrates. So that, that has a whole set of other benefits as, as, as well. So um, I'm really happy to see things like intermittent fasting, ketogenic diets, picking up uh, and, and becoming more popular because uh, it, it will have a tremendous benefit to mitochondrial okay. function. Well. We're winding down in our time, so I've got a couple of questions. One of them is, what is brown fat? Why is it important? How do we increase it? And the other is about cannabinoids and how do these relate in improvement of mitochondrial function? Sure. So brown fat is an interesting area of uh, study right now. And that's because uh, brown fat, uh, which is brown adipose tissue, um, it's, it's, a, it's a specialized tissue in our body that um, uses the calories and the electrons um, not to generate ATP or energy, but to generate heat. And this is uh, something that is uh, in greater amounts in infants. This is how they uh, stay warm and can regulate their body temperature. It's, it's also something that is found uh, in greater quantities in um, populations that live in the far north. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why they're able to uh, withstand, uh, you know, very long winter seasons, uh, as opposed to, say, uh, populations that uh, originated more from the equatorial regions where generating heat, body heat is, is uh, not a, a desirable thing. But the thing is, is that as uh, when we generate, when we bring a lot, of, a lot of these calories and electrons as heat, um, it's, it's a way to dissipate um, what we call the proton gradient in the, uh, in the electron transport chain and re- dramatically reduce the, the risk that these electrons spill out and create free radicals. So it's, it's, uh, it not only is a, a beneficial for generating heat in, in certain uh, populations, but it's a way to reduce the, the number of free radicals. And this um, is one of the reasons why, as an example, uh, you know, the Inuit population in the far north typically has uh, far fewer incidences of, or, or reduced risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, things like that. Um, whereas uh, populations that grew up in an equatorial region where generating excess heat is undesirable, you typically see that they have an increased risk of a lot of degenerative diseases like 
uh, diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Of course, I'm simplifying. There are many other factors that come into play, but that is definitely one of those. And so there is a lot of research, especially with obesity research, looking at ways to improve uh, brown fat or get more brown fat in our, in our bodies. And uh, it, a very simple way to do that is cold exposure. Our bodies produce more brown fat when exposed to, to cold temperatures. So some people, you know, I'm like a lot of naturopaths have said the way one of the ways to detox is exposed to heat and then cold and heat and then cold, etc. But we have like three minutes left. So I just want to ask you to talk about the health role of CBD or cannabinoids and then summarize any points to tell people how to get a hold of you. Sure. Yeah. So cannabinoids. Uh, so the endocan- uh, endocannabinoid system is uh, is a fascinating area of uh, research as well. And it's uh, the endocannabinoid system is. Uh, what regulates balance or homeostasis in our in our body, and what's really interesting is that uh, we find cannabinoid receptors on the mitochondria. So what this essentially, and now the research is is emerging, and we don't have a complete picture, but what it seems like is happening is that the fact that mitochondria have cannabinoid receptors, it seems like mitochondria is regulated by the presence of cannabinoids. So uh, whether we're talking about our endocannabinoids or the cannabinoids that our bodies produce or phytocannabinoids like that from the uh, the cannabis uh, uh, plant, they will have the ability to moderate uh, or um, regulate uh, metabolic function at the level of the mitochondria. So this is really interesting. Uh, other studies have shown things like CBD can inc- uh, increase mitochondria mitochondrial biogenesis or help our bodies develop more mitochondria. More mitochondria essentially means more energy and the cells work better. So there's a lot of exciting research being done. But like I said, it's uh, it's far too early at this point to see a, a really clear picture. But I'm really hopeful that the future research is going to really sh- open the doors and shed more light on it. Well, that is exciting. Uh, CBD is a, a component of marijuana, and so this is exciting for its medical use. In the last minute and a half, could you, any summarizing points or uh, mention how to get a hold of you? I mean, be sure to look up his book, Mitochondria and the Future of Medicine, but any final points? I think we covered it. I just really want to make sure that I, um, you know, your audience truly understands the importance of mitochondrial function to overall health and how it's implicated in so many different degenerative diseases. And as long as I can get that message across and the fact that there are realistic steps that we can take to improve our, our, our mitochondria and the function, their function, um, that, I mean, if we can get that message across, I think we've done our job. Um, well, I want to thank you because uh, I want to reemphasize mitochondria are crucial for our health, our longevity, avoiding uh, chronic diseases, and to function well. And he's mentioned some ways to keep our uh, mitochondria healthy, CoQ10, other things would be carnitin and various supplements, as mentioned in his books, eating healthy, wise health choices. So I want you all to check out his book, um, which is called Mitochondria and the Future of Medicine. So uh, read about your mitochondria, share this information so you can help yourselves get well and others, and above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. We